1 Corinthians 15, and if I can draw your attention towards the end of the chapter, to verse 55, we're going to reflect upon verses 55 through verses 57 this morning. And again, these things in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul declares 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we are thankful that we can assemble in this place this morning, on this particular Sunday, and to be able to reflect upon the glorious finished work of your son, Jesus Christ, that not only he would die on the cross for our sins, but overcome the power of the grave and raise again three days later. And Jesus, we thank you that you are alive and we thank you that you are in our midst this morning. And so, Lord, we welcome you in this place. You're the most precious and wonderful visitor in this room. And we just pray that you'd be honored and glorified in our hearts and in our lives. And that as we open the word of God together, that you'd help us now to understand what it is that you want to say to each one of us personally in this room. We pray that you'd prepare us accordingly in the way only that you can. And that, Lord, we wouldn't hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking directly and individually to each one of our hearts. Bless your word, Lord, and speak to us. And we thank you in advance for doing such in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. You know, emphasizing the importance of the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, uh, A.W. Tozer declared these words. He said, The Christian church is helpless and hopeless if it is stripped of the reality and the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, there's great truth to that statement because the reality is all the help that we need, every one of us in this room, and all of the hope that we have on this entire planet truly does depend upon recognizing, number one, and responding, number two, to the reality that Jesus is currently alive. That unlike any other religious leader, whether it be Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius and other religious leaders that have existed, the one distinctive difference about the Lord Jesus Christ is his tomb and his grave is empty. It's historical fact that all those other religious leaders are buried somewhere. And though the Lord Jesus Christ was buried as well, three days later, he got up from the grave. He rose from the dead and there There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem, distinguishing himself and setting himself apart, which gives to us incredible help and gives to us incredible hope if we choose to put our faith in him and follow him because he is currently alive to help us today. And 1 Corinthians 15 is basically a chapter in God's word, a lengthy chapter that is given much detail and gives us lengthy explanation and teaching regarding this very reality of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no doubt the reason it's given to us, and it's a lengthy chapter, is because the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is really the heartbeat of the gospel message of salvation. 
it could very clearly be stated that the resurrection of Jesus is like the heart of Christianity. The reason is, is because it pumps life, if you would, it pumps out life into every other doctrine of what we believe in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is fundamental to the basis and foundation of our faith. Everything that we believe hinges on the reality of the risen and living Lord Jesus Christ for its survival. Paul, understanding that as a follower of the Lord, therefore invests by the Spirit's direction 58 long verses in this chapter to talk about and discuss the doctrine of the resurrection. The first thing he does as the chapter begins is he basically seeks to verify the historic reality and the authenticity of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, if you'll glance with me back in the 15th chapter, to around verse 3, you can see that this is the first agenda on Paul's heart as he talks about the resurrection. He says in verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. It was prophesied, and he fulfilled that. That he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then he goes on to say, verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas, that would be a reference to Peter, one of his disciples, and then by the twelve, his twelve apostles. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part, Paul says, are alive to the present, but some have fallen asleep, a reference to death. After that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. And then Paul says, and last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So Paul references these various different appearances of Jesus Christ after his death. How after he came back to life, the Bible tells us that he spent approximately 40 days going around, appearing to people in his risen form, letting them know and validating to people that he was indeed alive from the dead. Acts chapter 1 says this, Jesus presented himself alive after suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So for a 40-day span, a little over a month, after Jesus had risen from the dead and before he ascended back into heaven from whence he came, before he came to this earth to be born of a virgin and live in a body of flesh as a man, before he ascended back to the right hand of his father for 40 days, Jesus went around making appearances, encountering people. If you read the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see repeated accounts of different times when Jesus appeared to different individuals and he would encounter them. He would appear to a, a grieving woman in Mary and he would encourage her amidst her grief that there was hope beyond the grave. He appeared to Thomas who was struggling with his faith and was a bit skeptical and struggling and he reassured him of the spiritual realities that he was wrestling with. Paul here mentions a few of the different times when Jesus appeared. In verse 5 he speaks of how Jesus went and appeared to Cephas or Peter. 
And no doubt that was to assure him because Peter was a failing Christian. He had denied the Lord. And no doubt Jesus took occasion to go and reveal himself to Peter and say, Peter, listen, I know you denied me. I know you failed me and you're struggling with the guilt of how much you have denied me recently. But Peter, listen, it's okay. I took care of everything. I'm alive from the dead. The Father's accepted my sacrifice and, and you can be forgiven and you can still be used, Peter, even though you failed me miserably. It tells us here that he appeared as well to the twelve and the gospel accounts record that and how even verse 6 says he appeared at one point to over 500 people at one time. And Paul says, writing some 20 years later, he says the majority, the greater part of those 500 eyewitnesses are still alive to this day. He said some of you have died. But he said the majority of them are still alive. In other words, again, over 500 people at once were eyewitnesses to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, that's pretty credible testimony to the reality that Jesus is alive from the dead. In our court of law today, if you have two eyewitnesses that say, hey, we saw the auto accident. We saw that man with a gun go into that Wawa and rip them off for a pack of bubble gum. We, hey, two eyewitnesses, that's two people that literally saw it as an eyewitness, not just telling secondhand information, two eyewitnesses, plenty enough credible. Here the Bible saying there were hundreds of people, hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the reality that Jesus was alive from the dead and could validate that reality. So Paul here is just seeking to drive home this reality that it is a reliable historical fact that Jesus Christ not only died on a cross in Jerusalem, but he also raised from the dead. And then he takes the rest of the chapter to give an explanation. And I encourage you to familiarize yourself with this chapter if you want to understand more of the importance of the resurrection because the Bible speaks of how it is absolutely essential to the doctrine of our salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And he spends a lengthy chapter doing that. And then he ends in the verses that we just read together, really then, with kind of a triumphant celebration of what the resurrection of Christ actually means for us personally. And the effect and the benefits that we can reap as a result of that. And, and that's really what I want to draw your attention to this morning as we reflect upon the resurrection of what it then brings to us and why we should then celebrate and rejoice even as Paul does after writing about the resurrection in this lengthy chapter. He makes a celebration and a statement of just thanksgiving in these verses and he begins really with a reference to the effects of Christ's resurrection there in verse 55 if you'll draw your attention back with me to what we read Paul here in sort of this enthusiastic statement says oh death where is your sting oh Hades where is your victory now the picture here is Paul speaking sort of like a confident competitor uh, if you remember many, many years ago, Muhammad Ali, you remember that he was about the most famous trash-talking, wasn't he, uh, competitor in the boxing uh, sport. He just, he would taunt people and he was, but a lot of times he would back up what he would say. You have to give him credit for that. But he, but he enjoyed taunting people verbally in the competitive spirit. And really, this is kind of the picture here. You have Paul, like this confident competitor, 
facing an opponent and through faith in the victorious risen Christ that he is absolutely assured of in his own experience and encounter with the risen Christ, you have Paul now confidently taunting death and hell. And because of his faith in Christ that he is alive, Paul knows that Jesus has powerfully conquered the death process so he doesn't have to be terrorized anymore by sin. He doesn't have to be terrified anymore by the grave and the death process because he knows that the Lord Jesus has triumphed over these things in spiritual conquest and that he has won the victory through his death and resurrection that these things are already defeated. And because Paul was on his team and connected to him, Paul here is sort of mocking those things that once terrorized him as a man. He's mocking those things that were once enemies the fear of death and the power of sin. These things were once enemies to Paul's life and now he's mocking them saying here, oh death, where is your sting? Oh hell, oh grave, oh Hades, where is your victory? It's been defeated in Christ and Paul here is sort of rejoicing in that reality. In verse 56, he then sort of says by way of evaluation, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. So basically you find Paul here sort of giving an honest evaluation about some spiritual facts that are true among all of humanity. And the first thing he does here in verse 56 is he addresses the problem of death. You notice in the verse there he says, verse 56, the sting of death is sin. That word sting there, when you look at it in the original language, is a term that referred to a poisonous sting of like a scorpion that would inflict its prey as it stung it and put it to death. And the thing that makes death, what Paul is saying, using this kind of analogy, the thing that makes death so deadly and, and so bad is the effect of sin. The sting of death is the existence of sin. The reason why death is such a dreaded thing is because of the powerful effect of sin that is behind it. See, death would have no powerful sting if it were not for the existence of death. The Bible teaches us that sin is what makes death such a powerful enemy and such a great problem for all of us. The reason that death came into existence is because sin has entered the world. Genesis chapter 2, at the beginning of the Bible, God creates man. He has relationship with Adam and Eve. They walk together in fellowship and harmony. And man is conscious of God. He lives his life in existence with God. And God in his love wanting a relationship. Not a religious routine or requirements and a forced obligation that a man would have to follow him. God gives one prohibition to honor Adam's choice because he wants man to have a choice, to freely choose to follow him. So he says, Adam, you may partake of all the trees in the garden. Of the tree of knowledge of evil, he says, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, we know the story. Adam disregards God's authority he disregards God's one command given to him. He rebels against God in his life. And as a result, death enters the world. The Bible tells us that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. So at the moment Adam sinned against God, death entered in. God honored his word. He said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And when I say death entered in, death then becomes the consequence or the punishment 
of sin. That's what the Bible teaches. The soul that sins shall surely die. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What we deserve, wages are what you get paid for what you do. What we deserve, what we get paid and for our sin, the Bible says, is death. And please understand, when the Bible speaks of death in two ways, that we all die physically. True? Last time I checked statistically, still 10 out of every 10 people die. Now that's testimony to something. We all die physically. The problem is, is because we are all sinful individually. And therefore, we all experience the consequence of physical death, as well as the fact, more importantly, the Bible speaks of spiritual death. And that is separation from God. And the same way when you die physically, your spirit is separated from your physical body. The Bible speaks of spiritual death, whereby we are separated from consciousness and relationship with God as he originally intended with Adam. Remember, when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden and he disobeyed God, all of a sudden, the next scene when you see Adam, now he's hiding from God. Now he's afraid of God and guilt. He's sewing together his own fig leaves, trying to cover his guilt because he feels uncomfortable between himself and his creator. That didn't exist prior to sin. See, when Adam sinned, he died spiritually. The light went out in his inner being and he lost fellowship and consciousness with God. And as a result, the Bible says we're all born of Adam. So we begin life spiritually dead. We begin life separated from God. We, that's why we need a Messiah. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need to be born again that we might come alive and have a spiritual birth to experience spiritual life even if it was a physical birth. And the Bible tells us there's no difference. We all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. It's the one thing that we all share in common. We all fail. We all make mistakes, young and old and rich and poor. Each person for their own sin is inflected, infected with death as the result of that. And the Bible tells us clearly it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. It's just a reality. And Paul points to that reality here. And he next acknowledges in verse 56 sort of then the strength or the power of sin itself. He says in verse 56, and the strength of sin is the law. Now, what does he mean by that? The strength, the power behind sin, he says, is the law. Well, I think two things Paul's pointing out here. First of all, God's law, you could say somewhat, provokes or prompts and, and, and reveals the sinful tendency within all of one of us, each one of us by nature. The Bible teaches, again, that we are all born sinful by nature. Again, I have three children, and, and we have spent many, many years raising them, and we spend a lot of time trying to teach them how to do what's right. I've never once had to teach any one of my three daughters how to do what's wrong. They kind of have a knack for it, if you understand what I mean by that. Now, maybe they have good genes. They Certainly, they have mine. But ultimately, they have Adam's genes. That's the problem. By nature, you can't raise a child and not be convinced of the biblical reality that we are sinful. By nature, by default, we're magnetically drawn to do what's wrong, not to do what's right. We are fallen creatures. And what the Bible's telling us here is by nature, we're rebellious at heart. We're prone to do evil. And God's law just sort of promotes or, or provokes the, the reality of that to be seen clearly. Let me illustrate it this way. If we were to put a sign on that back wall when you came in this morning that said, wet paint, do not touch. As soon as you read the sign, what would be your natural reaction? You know, what? It is. all of a sudden now, 
when you read that, what happens? You're totally tempted. It instigates the temptation to just want to see if it is wet. Now, before the sign was there, did you have any interest in touching that wall when you came in? Of course not. I didn't see anybody come in and say, yeah, it's, it's a nice shade of blue there. Nobody does that. But isn't it amazing how when you establish a standard, a rule, a prohibition, all of a sudden, once a rule or standard is established, something within us is awakened to like want to rebel, to want to resist somehow. And the Bible's saying the Old Testament law of God had that same impact on people. That once God clearly gave his word and his standards to live by, what happened is people's sinful rebellion within them that was already there, it was then just prompted to prove itself out. And all of a sudden, that rebelliousness in humanity did not like the fact that God would be in charge or anything or anyone would be in charge. So as a result of that, the law of God kind of prompts within that inclination to disobey and selfishly respond. Again, please understand, the problem is not with God's law. Don't misinterpret here. The problem is not with God's law. The Bible says God's law is holy and just and good. The problem is the powerful presence of a sinful nature within us. Romans 7, Paul himself described, he said, how sin dwelled in him. He says in that same chapter, I find a law within me that evil is present with me. He says, Paul was in essence saying, I feel like there's this little rebellious dictator that sits on the throne of my heart. And that is always trying to convince me to rebel against what is right. That is always trying to convince me like a legislative rule within me saying, you, know, you don't have to submit to that. You do what you want. And he, and he said, I found that evil is present with me. There's something within all of us, our sin nature, the Bible calls it, that causes us to want to be in charge, to make our own rules, to live by our own rules and our own standards. And even when standards are set before us that are right and righteous, especially God's word, the power of sin within us makes us want to buck against it. It makes us want to rebel against it and resist it. And it just prompts within us the reality that proves, it just proves that we are sinful, that we are rebellious by nature. And I think the sting of death being sin and the strength of sin being the law also, the idea of the strength of sin being a law it sort of proves God's law does that we are sinners. Because in the same way, once you establish a law, the law becomes the evidence that you're a lawbreaker. Once there's a speed limit sign put up that says 55 miles an hour, well, now there's a standard for you to be measured by. So now when you are breaking the law, that law, in a sense, becomes the standard that stands in perfect judgment against the violation that we commit. Same way with God's law. God's word and God's law and its holy requirements stand in perfect judgment against me. It's what proves, like a mirror, see, Tony, you are a sinner. And, and it becomes the standard whereby I'm righteously judged before a holy God. Like a mirror reflects the face and shows you what is really true about yourself. You got up this morning and, and took a look in the mirror and the one thing the mirror does is it never lies. That's really what you look like. Prior to painting and fixing and combing and mending and trimming, that, that's, that's what you really look like. When you look in the mirror, it tells you the truth about yourself. The Bible says God's word is a mirror and God's word says to us, yes, 
you rebel against God, you disobey. And God's word is the standard that in a sense really reveals our condition and shows us that we are lawbreakers. And it points out that we have a sense of guilt before God and more than that, that we deserve punishment for our sin against God, that we deserve to experience damnation because of our rejection against God. And it it puts things in a real light for us and a sobering light because it causes us to realize our helpless condition. However, knowing that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, making perfect payment for us, and that Jesus rose from the dead victoriously and overcame sin and death and Satan as well, Paul in verse 57 says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul the Apostle, as he thought about this, he went from total hopelessness to complete hope and and, and an excitement and enthusiasm of the good news of what's available that despite the guilt of our failures and how weak you are and how frail I am in making mistakes, that we don't have to lose the battle to sin and death in our lives. And, And more than that, God doesn't want you Please hear me this morning. God doesn't want you to live and to die like a victim. That's not as hard for you. God doesn't want for you to live and die as a victim of a losing battle. He wants you to enjoy the victorious experience that he planned for you in his son Jesus Christ amidst your life battles. Are you going to have battles with sin? Yes. Are you going to have struggles in this world? Absolutely. Are you going to wrestle with things? Certainly. But God doesn't want you to live your life defeated like a victim of a losing battle when there is victory and overcoming power in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And if you're connected to Jesus, there is overcoming power available. That's why Paul is saying here in verse 57, like an expression of celebration, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is saying, oh, I'm so thankful. And he's saying the resurrection of Christ is something that we should be thankful for, that we should be celebrating, that we should rejoice over. Think of how excited and enthusiastic people get about a momentary victory in a sporting competition. You know, you go to a stadium and you watch... Then Christians come into church and go, I'm not raising my hands, that's weird. Well, you raise your hands for the Eagles. Yeah! Then the very next play, they do what the Eagles do, right? And then you go, ah! And then you want to throw your stuff at them. And he's saying, listen, if we have such a heart to celebrate victories for our sports teams and and, and it causes a sense of excitement and, and enthusiasm and appreciation, he's saying, man, this is the idea. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that word victory, when you look at it there, it speaks of overcoming an enemy. It's a term defined as achieving success in a struggle and an endeavor against difficulties. And that's what God supplies to us through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we celebrate other things, certainly as Christians, we should celebrate this victory. He says it's a victory, verse 57, that God gives to us. Take note of that. God gives us the victory. That term in the original language is in the present tense. It indicates that God doesn't just give victory once. It's a term that means God continues to give his victory. That he's continuously giving victory. God, please take note in our text, is the source of victory. You and I are the recipients of victory. 
Now that's important because victory from God's perspective is not really something that you have to work to achieve. It's not something you have to earn or acquire through effort. A lot of times you'll hear people say, maybe you've said yourself, man, I, I just keep trying to get victory over this. And, and I'm, I'm just really trying to get victory. Well, that may be part of the problem. That you keep trying to get victory when the reality is God wants to give you victory. And you can try in your energy and efforts and self-resolve to overcome sin and to stop some habit or to deal with something. And, and a lot of times we try so hard trying to experience victory. And the Bible's showing us that spiritual victory is something to freely receive from God experientially. God gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is through a relationship with Jesus Christ experientially as we submit to Christ and we surrender to Christ and say, Jesus, I can't do it. I can't do it. Jesus, take control. Rule over me. Be Lord of my life. The Bible says that through our Lord Jesus Christ, when he becomes Lord in your life to that extent, then God can give you victory. Because then you dethrone yourself from your own life. You get off the throne and you put the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the victorious one takes control of your life and then the victory of God can be experienced in your life through Jesus Christ. And I want to speak to you in the remainder of our time together about some of how we benefit from the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Now, there are many ways that we experience victory through Christ, but three things specifically I just want to touch upon, and that is the fear of death, the power of sin, and the struggle of loneliness. And those are three areas that the victory of Christ, in many ways, has a helpful benefit for all of us, that through Jesus' risen life, God gives us victory, first of all, over the fear of death. And I emphasize the word fear of death because just like being born, it's appointed, the Bible says, for all to die once. And that death appointment is the one appointment that you can't avoid. You can't call your reception and say, hey, can you, uh, can you cancel my appointment with him? You, you can't cancel your appointment with death. It's the one appointment you cannot get out of or avoid. And it's also the one appointment you don't get to know the day or the hour of. It just comes. It comes unexpectedly. And it's something that when it comes, you can't negotiate your way out of it. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't run from it. You can't escape it. You just experience it. And it's an appointment for every one of us. And despite how people act or what they say or how you pretend, the natural fear of death exists in every single human being on this planet. And I'll tell you why. Because you don't get to practice it. Right? You don't get to practice it. You just experience it. That makes it a little bit unsettling. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus came to release those who through fear of death were all their life subject to its bondage. Death is like this dreaded event among mankind that we hope to avoid, but ultimately we know that we can never escape. And everybody wrestles. The one common fear among every breathing person on this planet is the fear of the death experience. It's naturally ingrained in us because, first of all, it was never God's plan. So we're not hardwired to deal with it. God never intended us to die. Sin brought death into the picture. 
So we don't know what to do with it. And for many people, the fear of death grips them with incredible terror and anxiety and stress. For some of you here in this room this morning, you may not say it out loud, but you live your life in bondage, terrified of the reality of your death, realizing it may come and overwhelmed with the fear of that dreaded enemy of your soul. The good news is Jesus came to release people from the fear of death. He came to release people from that bondage of being terrorized by the death experience by what he did for us. Because he died for our sins, which takes away the punishment that we deserve. And he overcame the death process. So if we come to Christ, he can help us overcome the death process as well. Because he can give to us the very eternal life that he possesses. And that fear and that angst that weighs within us can be eliminated. 2 Timothy 1 says, The appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus said this in his own words in John 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. See, Jesus conquered the death process. Now, that being said, please understand, do we still face death? Certainly. But we don't have to fear death. Because for the Christian, the person who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the eternal life of Christ. Christ gives you the eternal quality of his life. And when he gives you eternal life, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Then you possess the eternal life of Christ. And yes, you still face the death process, but you don't have to fear the death process. Because the death process just becomes a servant to transfer us from this physical life into the eternal life of God's eternal bliss in heaven forever and ever. So death then becomes the servant to the Christian. It's not a dreaded enemy. Death becomes my servant because when I die, it's death that facilitates my transition into the eternal presence of God. And how glorious, how glorious to have that internal peace. We talk about making peace with God. How glorious to be able to live this life. And I tell you this, you are not ready to live life until you are ready to die. Once you become ready to die, then you're ready to live life and to experience life. In the meantime, it's a difficult weighing thing. What an awesome assurance to have the promise of eternal life. That's why Paul could say as a Christian, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. I can live for Christ now, and he says, and when I die, I'm not losing something. I'm gaining everything that I lived for. And I'm gaining something much better, the escape of this struggling and fallen world. And the release from that fear of death brings such a rest in the soul of human beings. Listen, if you're here this morning and you have a fear of death, perhaps it's because very clearly you have never embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior and let him become the Lord of your life. Because the Bible says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He can give you the victory over the fear of death. This morning, as we close out this service, you can say as a sinner before Jesus, who is in our midst, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. And I thank you that you died on the cross and rose again for me. And would you give me that eternal life so that I can have victory over the fear of death in my life and have that internal rest within my soul? So Jesus gives us victory over the fear of death. He also, secondarily, through his risen life, gives us victory over the power of sin. 
Now we talked earlier in verse 56 about the very real power and strength of sin. Jesus said these words. He said, he who sins is a slave of sin. In other words, teaching that from the moment we begin to indulge sin, as we do from an early child, sin enslaves us. Sin wants to dominate and rule your life. It wants to control you and keep you like a cruel master shackled by invisible chains to live in constant obligation to fulfill your wrong desires. And with invisible chains, it wants to just keep you in bondage so you keep fulfilling sinful cravings and doing wrong things. And, and you fill in the blanks, whatever it is. Our sinful nature can be quite an overwhelming force in our life. Whether it's causing us to live selfishly, whether it's the sin of pride in our lives, whether it's lust or some sexual sin, whether it's lying or unforgiveness or bitterness towards someone, whether it's some life-dominating habit where you continue to have to live in subjection to some habit that dominates your life, whether it's substance abuse or whatever it may be, whether it's jealousy or greed, you fill in the blank. Whatever the struggle is for you, Sin wants to dominate you. It wants to enslave you and force you to have to keep living that way so that you can't get free from it. And that despite how hard you try, human resolve and effort, you find there's no way to conquer this. I can't stop this habit. I can't overcome this attitude. I can't break free of this. This controls my life. I'm like a slave to it. Yes, you are. Unless someone sets you free. And you know the reality as well as I do for my life. When you're in that and you're defeated and you're constantly losing the battle, that is so disheartening because you can't change. And you can't refrain and you can't stop the, the struggle and it makes you feel guilty and hopeless and frustrated. Well, listen, the Bible teaches us all throughout Romans chapter 6 specifically that Jesus rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin from ruling people's lives. It says that sin does not have to have dominion over you. You don't have to live as a slave. You don't have to live in bondage. There is liberation and deliverance and freedom in the victorious power of the risen Christ who defeated not just the penalty of sin, but he destroyed the power of sin. And he wants to offer that victory and power to you through his life. That same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power available now to help you and I overcome sin in our lives. And let me say it to you this way, if it helps to make sense in some way. As a born-again believer, the Bible teaches when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, enters your life. Christ in you, the living Christ lives within you as a constant companion. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he overcame every temptation. So if the living, victorious, risen Christ who overcame every temptation lives in you as a companion and a helper, guess what? When you face temptation, you don't have to fight the temptation on your own. You can say, Jesus, you live within me. Jesus, you faced this temptation and you were victorious over it. You fought this battle with sin and you didn't give in to it. So Jesus, would you help me to do what I can't seem to do on my own? You alone know how to have triumph and victory. Would you help me to have the power to do that? And Jesus says, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Hey, this morning, maybe something has got you in bondage. You've been enslaved to something. This morning, maybe it's time to realize 
You can't set yourself free. But if you let Jesus and you cry out to Jesus, he can set you free. He can liberate you. That's why Paul is declaring here this important spiritual truth. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, I submit to your Lordship. Give me the victory over sin. Give me the ability to live in an overcoming life. Are you still going to wrestle? Are you still going to struggle with sinful tendencies? Yes. But it doesn't have to dominate you. You don't have to live a life whereby you can't be set free and you have something dominating your life because Christ can give you victory. He wants to give you victory. Paul says, I pray that you might know the power of his resurrection. Can I ask you this morning, do you know the power of his resurrection? Not the historical fact of it. Are you experiencing personally the power of his resurrection? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead can raise you out of anything that you're struggling with and can give you victory that you desperately need. Thanks be to God who gives us that victory over the power of sin. And thirdly and finally, we can focus on the victory of Christ in this way, that Christ's victory is also available in the area of personal loneliness. And I'll tell you, the holiday season, that becomes more applicable maybe to many of us, even in this room, because one of the greatest needs in our hearts is for companionship. God said it's not good for man to be alone. He knows the struggle and the difficulty and to have someone in a close relationship with you that you can spend time together with, to talk to, to listen to, to meet that need of loneliness in your life, that's something we all crave for. I don't care who it is, loneliness can be a struggle for any person. A single person struggles with loneliness. If you're here this morning and you're a widow, you struggle with loneliness. Young people, can have lots of friends and still struggle with loneliness. Loneliness can be a battle for married people. The truth of the matter is we can be in a room like this surrounded by all kinds of people and feel extremely lonely and totally empty inside. And the wonderful reality is this. Because Jesus is not lying dead in a grave somewhere, his presence in a personal way, is available to have companionship and relationship with everybody. Jesus declared in Revelation chapter 1, I am he who lives and became dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And Jesus' life is available to all of us. We can have relationship with him, not be religious. Listen, I don't like rules than anybody else. If this was about rules, not only would I not be following Christ, but the last thing I would do is stand before anyone and talk to people about him. You give me a rule, I want to break it. But a relationship, that's real, genuine. Loyalty, companionship, camaraderie, that appeals to me. And see, God wants relationship. And the way God wants us to have loving relationship is through the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who was alive. If he was dead, there'd be no relationship. It would just be rules. But because he's alive, there's relationship available. Jesus said this, I will not leave you as orphans or abandoned. I will come to you. Matthew 28, he said, I am with you always. The presence of Jesus. The Bible says he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And you know what? That's a great answer to have victory over personal loneliness. That Jesus can meet the need of a companion, a friend, a helper, 
a husband, a wife, a parental role in a way that you never had. Someone who can be there with you as a companion. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul was going through one of the more difficult times in his life, Paul, when he was struggling in a hard time, Jesus said this to Paul, Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Maybe you're here this morning and you are going through a very difficult time in your life. And maybe Jesus would say to you in the midst of that loneliness that you might have victory over that feeling, that dark cloud of loneliness. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. I'm with you and I will be with you wherever you go. That constant companion of Christ's presence with us. If we're honest, we all have natural insecurities in our human relationships what if this person abandons me? What if this person then leaves for me? Listen, Jesus, the Bible says, declares, I will never leave you, never forsake you. And because of that, there's a great assurance that we can have victory over personal loneliness. Look, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not, it's not just a historical fact that we should celebrate annually. The resurrection of Jesus and the fact that he is alive should be something that we are experiencing daily, every day of our lives, because Jesus is alive. He is alive today. And because of that, the question has to become, on this resurrection morning, are you experiencing the life of Christ? Are you experiencing Jesus? Are you experiencing his life? Not following his truths, not you know, showing up to his house once in a while. Are you experiencing Jesus? Are you experiencing his life to help you, to give you victory, to enable you, to assist you, to comfort you, to teach you, to guide you? And this morning, are you struggling as we all do? Are you struggling with being defeated in some area of your life? Listen, God wants you to know this morning that he offers present and continual help for victory. God wants to help you have victory in whatever it is you're wrestling with. And he wants to continue to help giving you that victory. Well, how do I experience that? How do I experience that? You need to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as you live in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the victorious one can then bring that victory into your life. 